You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. We're going through the book of Colossians. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Colossians. We're still in chapter 1. I have promised somebody that we will finish this before Thanksgiving. And I am still on target, okay? I'm still on target to get there, so... Um, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, we're going to get there together um, to the end of Colossians by Thanksgiving. More in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 today, 1.15 today. And the beginning of Colossians begins like almost every other letter that exists in uh, in the uh, New Testament that Paul wrote. It starts with an introduction. Paul explains who he is, who he's writing the letter to. In this case, it's a small church in a small town. What a message for a church, a small church in a small town, right? So he writes this letter to this small church in Colossae, uh, and and he says, here's what I've heard about y'all. Here's the good things I've heard. And he thanks God for the good things he's heard. And then he encourages them to continue to practice the good things that he's heard so that they can um, bear a, a plentiful harvest um, for God's kingdom. And so he asked that they would continue to do the things that he knows that they started to do in Christ because, as was always the case in the early church and is the case in, in, in the current modern contemporary church, there are always false teachers among the sheep. There are always false shepherds trying to lead people astray, some of which is innocent, some of which I think is done in ignorance, and some of which is malicious, some of which is purposeful, where people are trying their very best uh, to manipulate and and to cause a following after them. And so Paul was aware that inside of this church, there had begun to be some teachers that had kind of swooped in and were beginning to corrupt the gospel message, and the gospel message is that Christ died for sinners like me and like you and rose again on the third day. That's it. That's the simple gospel message. There's a lot of things that we can add in. There's a lot of descriptions we can give. I mean, the book is not short that shares the gospel. I mean, it is a fairly lengthy book with a lot of words, but the simple truth is that sin separated us from a loving God, and that loving God sent his son to die in our place where we should bear the, bear the sin, where we should bear the consequences, where we should die the second death. Christ died for those who would believe. And if you choose to believe, if you profess Jesus Christ, if you believe in your heart and you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, uh, then God will save you. And that's the simple gospel message. Anything added on to that is a corruption of that. Any time that we try to minimize the work of Christ and elevate the work of man, and this is done in a lot of ways in churches where we do stuff like this. You know, if you give to the Mary Hill Davis Mission offering, wonderful offering, by the way, I've already pubbed it today, but if you give to that, you know, then you're, then you're you know, closer to God, then you're holier, then you're, you're moving in the right direction. There are whole cathedrals and cities built on the general presumption that if you would give to the church the right amount of money, at the right time, then you and your loved ones can be spared a lot of torment and torture. Like, that, that's not a unique teaching. We travel around Europe and we look at these beautiful, you know, cathedrals and monasteries and Vaticans. And we're like, my goodness, look at how wonderful and 
Yeah, well, of course it was. They were bilking the people for everything they could. Right? There's, there's always been a sense to add something on. Yes, you can get to heaven, but you also need to do something else. You know, if you would come to church, and we do this in the church, right? We kind of like, we don't, we don't say it, but we kind of say it, right? If you would come to church, or if you would attend a Sunday school class, or if you would join a small group, or if you, if you, if you, if you would do this, if you would do that, if you would do something, then, then you're adding a little bit, then you're closer, then it's easier for God to save you, but it, it's not. There's nothing that we add, right? There's nothing that we add to our salvation. Right? I forget who said it. It might have been Alistair Begg. I don't know. But, you know, the only thing we add to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. That's all that we contribute to our salvation is the fact that it is a necessary thing because we're sinful, broken people. And there's a lot of teachers out there who want to add things in and touch things in. And if you would just give to my ministry, if you would just seed into my ministry... Turn the TV preachers off when they start saying that, just so you know. Turn them off. When they start talking about you seeding into their ministry, just, just flip them off. Say, my pastor says that's garbage. It is. Right? Or you'll, you'll reap a harvest. If you'll, if you'll do this, I'll send you a free... By the way, if you have to give money to receive a free gift, this is true of any charitable endeavor, you are not giving money for a free gift. You are purchasing the gift, and then they are overcharging you for it. That's the way it works, right? Like if I said, if you give $100 to the church, you'll get one of our coffee mugs, right? You'll get a free coffee mug. You've got to be able to see through this, okay? That's just a little discernment. I mean, it's for free. It really has nothing to do with the message. But uh, there's a lot of people out there, false teachers among, among, among the church, right? And, and I think there are some innocent guys out there who just kind of are confused about what the gospel is, honestly. But a lot of them are malicious, mean-spirited, intentionally guiding people down the path to perdition and we have to we have to stand against that okay all that to say that's what the book of Colossians is written about so we get to our passage here in verse 15 of chapter 1 I hope you've made it there um, by now he says he is the image that's Jesus is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Paul begins to, to write, and there is debate about this passage here, these first all the way through verse, I don't know, 20 or so. Um, this reads like a poem. It reads like a hymn. It reads like, like poetic language about who Christ is. And some uh, scholars say, well, I think Paul took this from somewhere else. He, he, he was early Christian hymn, and he just kind of took that and inserted in. It's not plagiarism, I guess, if the Holy Spirit tells you to do it. Uh, and so he took this, and he inserted it in there so people could, could, could get a sense of who Jesus was. There's something about poetic language that is necessary when speaking of the majesty of God and, and of the beauty of Christ. Or there's a reason that we have a song portion in every worship service that we have. A lot of y'all are not musical. I know this. You've told me this or I have been close enough to you to discern this for myself. A lot of you are not musical. Some of you are. Praise God for that, right? But some of you are not musical. You don't have, you know, these golden pipes, right? And I don't either, by the way, but, but like, like you, don't, you don't have some, some wonderful voice, and some of you are self-conscious about that. 
And you're like, I don't, I don't, ha- I can't sing, so I don't sing. But there's something about the language, like of poetry and of music, of the artistic language, that is necessary when talking about the, the beauty and majesty of Christ. Right? Because, because it, we, we can't explain it any other way. Right? It requires us to use pictures and uh, expressive language, and, and it doesn't work outside of it. And so then we arrange it with beautiful instrumentation, and it carries us in. And, and there's something about all of that, because Christ and God is beyond our verbal ability to communicate. And beauty, like the, the reality that there are beautiful things, like there are notes that string together beautifully, and there are notes that string together not beautifully. Right, Miss Dixie? You get a first-year first piano player, and sometimes they do something, you're like, now that was not beautiful, right? Now let's, let's focus on what makes beautiful things. And we have books of theory about how to make beautiful sounds out of music because there is beauty inside of it, right? And, and that's, that's a real thing. It's not some construct that we've, we, we, we've made. It's real. But, but God is beautiful, and if the music is beautiful, right, like it's a, it's a, it's a shadow, right? It's, it's a shadow of who God is, just like when you stand at the, the edge of a beautiful mountain range and you look out and you can see the majesty of God in the rock formation in front of you, right? There's something about beauty that draws us in. And so, so when we have the song portion of the service, when there's singing going on and there's this poetic language and there's this expressiveness and the notes are going, and, and you may say, I don't get it. I just want you to experience like if there's something in that moment right, that, that, that's transcendent, assuming that the words are true, which typically they are. Assuming that the words are true. There's something transcendent about that. We get a glimpse of who that is. Paul breaks into poetic language here. I'm of the opinion that Paul probably wrote this himself, but it really doesn't matter. Because when Paul begins to write about God, he begins to wax poetically about, about God. And when he speaks of Christ... The first thing he says about Christ is that he's the image of, God, of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now, that's a paradox for us right there. The image of the invisible God, right? Like, like if I was to draw, this is why we have a t- such a tough time catching ghosts, right? Some of y'all watch the Ghost Hunter TV shows, right? Very difficult to catch a ghost, right? Because we got our camera, right? And we, but we can't catch it because it's invisible, right? Or, just spoiler, maybe the you know, window's open and that's why things are moving. Right, but but regardless, we can't we can't catch it on video because it's invisible, right? And so we're like, oh, and then we get out all the little random like Ghostbuster tools that they had, like, oh, I've got readings here, and it's you know like there's radiation or something. I don't know. I generally think all that's garbage, just in case you're wondering your pastor's view on this. But but invisible things don't have an image, and so we struggle with the image of the invisible God. And the what 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 Paul is saying is he's used, not using the term. Like he's a picture of the invisible God or he's a photocopy of the invisible God. It's that he bears in him the totality of who God is, is in Christ. When you see Christ, you see God, right? It's not like we're made in the image of God, but we are not the image of the invisible God. Like when you see Matt Higginbotham, you do not see God. Yeah, that is that. Uh, that'll preach a hundred different ways. You do not see God, though, when you look at me. You see a dude, a guy, father, pastor, maybe a friend. I don't know. It depends on the day, right? But you see, you just see this, warts and all. 
right? Crumbs on his lips after eating his McMuffin this morning, right? Like, like you, see, you see this guy, right? But Christ, when you see Christ, you see God. You see all of the characteristics of God bound up in him. And that is who Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. And then he goes and says he's the firstborn of all creation. And this has led to all sorts of random heresies out there. So let's just put a couple to bed, right? right? Jesus is not created, right? So why is he called firstborn of all creation, right? Because part of our basic theology says that Jesus is inside the Trinity. Therefore, he has always been. It's part of God thinking he's preexistent. And so why would Paul say he's the firstborn of all creation? And what he's saying is that of things that were created, he has the right of the firstborn. If you remember the Old Testament, the right of the firstborn was given all sorts of special privileges of ownership and, a, and, a, and you know, it's first in line. He gets a double portion of everything. And the idea that Paul is saying is of everything that ever was, Jesus is doubly important of anything that you'll see walking around you today. The most esteemed person on earth who's worthy of the most amount of honor, Jesus is doubly worth that. He is the firstborn of all creation. How do I know that that doesn't mean he was created? Because I can read the very next line in the books. It says, for by him all things were created. Right? He's not, he's, he wasn't created because through him anything that was created was created. Right? By Christ creation took place. We know this if you go back to the very beginning uh, of the Bible. Right? Genesis 1. Right? God created the heavens and the earth. Right? And then it says... Right? And then the Lord said, you know, I'll, I'll put the stars and through the power of God's word, he said, I'm going to put stars in the sky. I'm going to put expanse uh, between the, the land and the sea. I'm going to do, and he speaks it, and then it comes to being. And John 1 tells us that Jesus is that word. He's the one that is the one creating. So when God speaks the word, Christ is the word doing the creating he is an amazingly pre-existent powerful thing and everything that is whether you can see it or not was created by and this is going to be important for the argumentation of colossians there was this this idea of uh of angels and how their role was inside of um the church and what was going on there and some people were elevating the importance of these messengers who worked for God and Paul is like Jesus is above all of that. He's above everything. He's before them. He created them and he will remain after them. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Our theology of God tells us that, that without God... Like if God ceased to pay attention to this point in history, this would cease to exist. God holds everything together. You know, we say he's got the whole world in his hands, right? And we sing that song to the children, right? The little bitty babies and everyone, right? He's got them all in his hands. That is theology being taught to children. It's a wonderful thing. By the way, again, how do we teach them that? By song. I'm just saying music matters, right? But, 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 but we do it. By song, and we teach them that God holds everything in hand. You know, if God was to release those things, it would cease to be. Because God holds us together. Through Christ, we are held 
together. The atoms in your body do not disintegrate. It's not because of the laws of gravity and all these other things, though it is to some degree because of that. It's because of the one who orchestrated all of those things. And if that thread was to be pulled out, this would cease to be. God holds us together through the power of Christ. We are held together. So Jesus is this image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is exceedingly special. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him everything, uh, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth and heaven, uh, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Jesus is, the, is this kind of like pre-existent being. That's the first section here. Like he's always been, he has the power of God inside of him. It's, a, it's the elevation of the divine inside of Jesus. Make sure we don't miss who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just like the, the friendly shepherd who's carrying lambs around with a stick up there, right? He is that, right? He's not just that, right? He is the creator of, of all of these things, right? He is working creation through the power vested in him as part of the Godhead, right? He is the image of the invisible God. When you see him, you see him. But he's not just that. He's localized to. He's not just off in the far reaches holding the universe together and, and creating things. He's local as well. He's the head of the church. People get confused sometimes about who the head of the church is. Sometimes someone says, your church speaking to me. And I have to stop and say, not my church. First of all, this church existed for roughly 140 years before I got here. Right? <laughs> so it would be very hard for it to be my church. Right? But it's not my church. Right? It's not even your church, Congregational Baptist. Right? It's Christ's church. He's the head of the church. He's localized here in this place. He is the head of the church. He's not far away only. He is local to us now. That is a beautiful thing. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. The firstborn of the dead is a phrase saying that he went down to death and came back again conquering death and you know what firstborn means anyone know what firstborn means it, it, it entails something very important there's going to be a second born right when i had my firstborn son seth who's off in missouri now pray for him um, when i had my firstborn son you know what i you know what i never called him my firstborn it was not until my now 18 year old daughter sierra emerged into the world that i had a firstborn I had a son, an only son, but I didn't have a firstborn. But now I have a second and a third and a seventh. So like I've got a long, long line of borns after there. But my firstborn son entails that there's going to be others behind him. Jesus was the firstborn from the dead or of the dead. What does that mean? It means that there are others who are going to conquer death as well. This is hope for us today. Uh, yesterday we stood in this room, we sat in this room, and we celebrated the fact that there is hope for us in death. That being that, that someone went before us and paved the way out of that to life eternal. Jesus was the firstborn of the dead, but he has been leading a procession of saints ever 
saints out. Right? He has been taking saints through every single day, since really probably since his ascension into heaven. People have died in the faith and have conquered death, not of their own power, not of our own holiness, not of our own righteousness, but because Christ won victory for us. Uh, I love the picture of representative battle to describe this. You probably have heard me talk about this before, but you're all familiar with the story of David and Goliath. Goliath is standing down uh, in a valley, and he comes down, and he represents the entire Philistine army. He says it's useless for us to actually go and all of us to fight, so let's just have 1v1 combat. I'll be the champion for the Philistines, and I will come down to fight. And if I win... Y'all work for us. No one else has to die except the guy I kill in the valley here. But if you win, then we'll be working for you. And it was representative warfare. Everyone sent their champion out. That's why they were so scared, because no one wanted to be the one to go head to head with Goliath, because he was like nine foot tall and had been killing people since he was a kid. Right? So no one wanted to tussle with that guy. And then some, you know, little shepherd boy shows up to give his brother some food and he hears what's going on he says I can do that through the power of God and he goes down and he fights Goliath right and Goliath falls and the Israelites win that battle the battle was won in the moment that Goliath fell death is Satan's Goliath and for generations Satan issued the, the, the challenge. Take on my challenger. Come on down. Take your best shot. And no one wanted to fight that fight until Jesus emerged on the scene. And Satan said, come on. Take on my challenger. This is my, this is my captain. This is my representative. Death itself. And Jesus said, okay. And he went down there. And he went to the grave. Satan felt like he had victory for a minute. But come Easter Sunday, the grave could not hold and death could not win because Jesus won the victory. And because Jesus won the victory, he was first born from the dead and we share in that victory. That's why I can be confident at a funeral and I can, I can be optimistic in the midst of sorrow because death didn't win. It had won for 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years. Death was undefeated till Christ came and won the victory. And now we don't fight death anymore because death's already been vanquished. And we can celebrate that we have hope through what Jesus did. And so Jesus is the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead. There will be others going on behind him, trudging down the exact same path as death has already been defeated. Because in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, uh, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his Christ. So I talked about that, right? right? That the work of Christ was ultimately to bring reconciliation to a lost world. And he did that on the cross. When he died on the cross, right, he, fought the, he fought the challenge. His blood was sufficient to cover your sins and my sins. And then he won victory for us. In verse 21, Paul gets to the so what. So if this is true, 
if Jesus is this God of the universe who does all these creative acts and all this creative power, and if it's true that Jesus is localized in the head of the church and is giving you an opportunity to be reconciled to God personally, you have the opportunity today to be reconciled to God. If all this is true, so what? Paul says this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach for him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which Paul, I, Paul, became a minister. He's like, you heard about this Jesus who created all these things and holds all things, has all this power, the firstborn of creation. <clears throat> and you heard about this Jesus who's localized here in this place. He's the head of the church, and he's bringing about salvation for you. And some of you even believed that. Some of you even believe that, and God will reconcile you to himself. And then he says something, he says, but if you will remain steadfast, if you'll remain firm in what you know, not to shift in the truth. See, our enemy is a tricky enemy. He takes the good things of God and he always corrupts them, you know, 20% off of, of kilter. Maybe just a half bubble off level. Or just a little bit, a little bit out of whack. He makes things not quite right, but it's close enough that sometimes we can get confused. And so instead of Satan showing up and trying to tear the church apart with new religions that throw away Jesus altogether, what he did was he infiltrated the minds and hearts of, of other people to come into the church and to corrupt the gospel message. To just take the gospel that Christ died for sinners and the only path for salvation you have is through faith, by the grace of God, and to say, yes, it's through faith, by grace, with a little bit of your effort too. And when you add with a little bit of your effort too, you, you totally neutralize the power of the gospel. Because instead of it being your power, right? instead, of, well, let's say this, instead of it being Christ's power to bring about salvation, it's Christ's power plus Matt Higginbotham's little bit of effort. And I did this little bit here. So now God, you're able to save me. As if God couldn't have met me here. But it's attractive. Why is it attractive? Because we all want to do something. We don't like being helpless. We don't like being totally lost in our sin. We want to offer something to God. And so when someone says, you do offer something to God, we're like, yes, now I get to contribute something. And it's not from a bad place. It's not even from a place of arrogance. It's from a desire, like, in almost any area of our life, like we, we did Feed Rockdale this year, uh, where we go out and deliver lunches. Some of you don't know what this. Is. We delivered uh, about 150 or so lunches a day uh, across Rockdale for six or seven weeks in the summer. We kind of bridged the gap between when the summer lunch program ends for Rockdale High School and Rockdale Junior High until the school year starts up again. That's kind of where our church steps into a hole uh, to provide lunches for kids. We do it. It's a wonderful ministry. You should be involved. There it is. That's a free plug for Feed Rockdale. It's like 48 weeks till we do it again. Okay, so you got some time to think about it. But one of the things that we did, we, we, we had this family that we would go to. 
And it's a free program. If you don't qualify for it, the richest person in town, if they want their kids to receive lunches, we're going to give them lunches. Right? The poorest person in town, they want their kids to receive lunches, we're, we're going to give them lunches. Uh, we don't look at their, oh, let me see your W-2, let me see your 1040. I want to look at your, no, we don't care. There's no quality, no qualification. Rich, poor, young, old, so long as you meet my age demographics, if you've got kids in your house, we will come to you and we will give you as many lunches as you say you need. We don't even verify that all the time. He knows his family, and, and, and it, it, I understand it. It's a free program, and we would go and give them the lunch, and then they would like sneakily slide my son like a dollar or two every so often. He'd give them a lunch, and they'd be like palming him two dollars. One time they gave us four dollars and lotto ticket winners. Um, we put them in the uh, counter's room just to mess with them. Um, what, what compels someone to do that? Well, it's tough. It's tough just to have someone give. You, you want to contribute. You want to take part. You want to you meet them some of the way, even if it's not halfway. You want to meet them some of the way. You want to, I thank you so much. Let me show you how much I thank you. I'm going to do some of this for you. And no matter how many times we told them, no, 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 they still insisted. So we just kind of added that money into the feed rock bill account and whatever. But we do that with salvation. It's attractive. If I can just add a little bit. God, just let me do a little bit. Like maybe this church attendance that I do, when I listen to that sermon, maybe, maybe that's a little step there, God, and it makes it easier for you because I, I don't want you to have to work so hard for me. And then a preacher comes in and tells you that's exactly how it is. It's exactly how it is. You do a little bit, God meets you the rest of the way. And when we say that to people, we're, we're leading them down a path of, of lies. We can't do that. We don't offer God anything. We're totally lost in our sin. And any good thing that we try to give to God is busted up and broken, right? Our righteous deeds are filthy rags. And the word filthy rags there means filthy rags. It's gross. That's the best we have to offer. And God's like, I don't want any of that. I will meet you exactly where you are. The picture of salvation here is one of Christ fully reaching us. But we can't allow ourselves to be misled. We need to hold firm that salvation is by grace through faith so that no man can boast. Anytime someone adds anything to it, well, yeah, but you also have to get baptized. No, salvation is by grace through faith so that no one can boast. Yeah, but you really got to go to church. No, salvation is by grace through faith. So that no one can boast. Yeah, but you really need to be in the word. No, salvation is by grace through faith. So that no one can boast. Yeah, but, but, but you got to bring your family into church with you. you got to have your family with you. you got to bring some friends with you into the church, right? No, salvation is by grace through faith. So that no one can boast. Yeah, but no. No. You have nothing to offer. Should you get baptized? Should you read your Bible? Should you attend church? Should you invite your loved ones to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ at church? Yes, 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 yes. Does any of that add to your chances, your likelihood, the ease of which it is for you to be saved? Is any of that necessary for your salvation? No. That is a damnable lie. It will send you to hell. If you believe that, if you believe that you must do these things in order to be declared righteous, you do not have faith in God. You have faith in you. 
that you can meet God halfway, that you can do some work, that you have some special power inside of you that makes it easier for God to save you. You don't. You don't. I don't. God, I, I don't. So give it up. Stop it. Go to church. Read your Bible. Do all the things that you think add to your salvation, but do them because you are worshiping the God who is this beautiful, creative Lord and the one who's near to you and drew you to salvation. Do it out of devotion to him, not out of obligation for your salvation because you are not saved by your works. Your works stink. But boy, it's attractive. When we hear it, guys, we've got to combat it. When you hear it, you have to combat it. And if you're listening to a preacher out there who tells you that, you need to turn that garbage off. If it's on the radio, it's probably not. But if it's on the radio, you need to turn the radio off. If it's on the TV, it probably is. You can turn the station. Right? If it's some Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, it's someone out there teaching you from your little phone screen out there, and they're talking about what you can do for your salvation, you need to turn that garbage off because you don't do anything for your salvation. Not a dang thing. And I don't either. It's not just you. I'm with you. Down there, deep, deep in the hole with you. But Christ, here's our call. This is Peter sinks into the water. Right, he's walking on the water, looks at the waves, begins to collapse. And what does he cry out? Save me, Lord. And Jesus reaches down. Through the power of Christ, Peter is saved. That's what he did to each and every one of us. If you're here today and you don't know that Jesus, I want you to know there is a God who desires to save you. Not because you're good, not because you're special, not because you're attractive, not because you're better than your neighbor, not because you made it to church today, not because you read your Bible this week. No, he wants to save you because he loves you you he created you to be in a relationship with you and he desires not that you would perish in death but that you would receive eternal life because he offered that life already when jesus himself beat hell in the grave and we celebrate that today the resurrection of jesus today so if you don't know that jesus today, i want you to know that jesus we're having an invitation you can come and you can get to know that jesus if you're a believer here today Guys, I just want you to marvel in the beauty of what it is that, that you believe in. The Jesus that, 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 that came to us, that, that is near to us like that lamb and holding him near and dear to his heart is the same Jesus who created the world, uh, the same Jesus uh, who, who holds the universe together. That is the Jesus that we serve. He's both and the same. And so when we sing these songs, guys, our hearts should be, should be drawn towards that. We should read the Bible and, and we should love this Lord. And when there's opportunities for us to talk about the beauty and the majesty and the grace and the glory of Jesus, our hearts should want to talk about that because there's nothing better. There's nothing better than him. So maybe you just need to enjoy our little time of invitation. I don't even know what we're singing for them. I have it right here, actually. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And maybe you just need to focus on that face of Jesus in your mind. And how wonderful it was what he did for you. Maybe, you. maybe you need to sing out loud for the first time in 20 years. Maybe you need to sing down low. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? right? But, but, but maybe you just need to take it in. 
You let the music do its part, right? To see the beauty of the music with the beauty of the words, talk about the beauty of our Savior. As Christians, we need to marvel in the beauty of Jesus. If you're not a believer here today, I want you to know he is beautiful. But he's also a God who, who cares tremendously about you and desires to save you. He's personal. He saved me, 15 years old, saved me. Just reached down, here you go, Matt. I didn't do it, didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. He just saved me. Maybe he wants to do that for you today. Let me pray.